tonight on Perch Exploitation. All right, now we can get high. Think, Cora, without these platelets, your bones eventually go fragile and break. You'd be dead within 100 years. But with them, you increase your life expectancy by 200 years older. Those are the sounds of lovemaking, amateur lovemaking. They had to be unintelligent enough for us to convince them for the budget. I'm above average. Not in height, weight, or intelligence. You'll never know what you're missing. You'll never know what real pleasure is. Are you crazy? With him, it wouldn't be a little, you know. Pizza. Big. Oh, wow. If they thought anyone could hear us, they would have gagged us. Dr. Cousins, suck out all the blood. Look, both of you look like burlap bags. And welcome to episode two of Project Exploitation. My name is Nick Cheney, and I am here with a good colleague and a bad friend, Dan Jeremy Brooks. How are you? Evils of the night. Evils of the night. Evils this, of the. I know it's I, this, I, this. This is exactly what I'm talking. I know about. you're like we talked about this at no, but it's just the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Every time, like I said, every time I see that title. Like, I'm looking at my notes now, and immediately I think of Susan Sarandon going, you know, creature of the night. But, you know, and then all the... First of all, you just think of Susan Sarandon a lot, so I that's do. not really do. unique to this situation. I, I do. Damn it, Janet. I, <laughs> I wear I wear that crown proudly, you know, of the Susan... Well, oh. anyway, sorry. Yeah, go on. 
That's fine. Not a lot of people want to wear it. Uh, let's see here. Oh, well, these days. Actually, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about turning mine in, too, because of the whole <laughs> Jill Stein thing. Anyway, okay, go on. <laughs> ah, well, thank you for being here, Dan. And uh, you know what? I'm just going to say it. Thank you for being on the last episode oh, as well. I, you know? I enjoyed it. I had a great time. Well, as did I. And thank you. To all the listeners out there who have already listened to it, it was, you know, we published it, and I'm always a worst-case scenario kind of person, so I expected the counter to stay at zero uh, all the way up until we recorded this, but that is not the case. We have had downloads, and we have had people listening, so... Wonderful. This is a very, very exciting thing, I think, and uh, hopefully, hopefully after this episode, uh, we'll kind of run the gamut of what this podcast will do and can do because you know last week we talked about death race 2000 which was besides being an extraordinary film that we both love obviously a very political one Mm -hmm. at its heart and this week we are oh boy we are in far left territory of of that we are really in the weeds of is this movie any good? (laughs) Which is a common question. A lot of people ask myself included when watching a a lot of these movies, uh, in this genre and, and from, you know, in exploitation in general, but you know what? I think, I think the answer may surprise you. Yes. Stay tuned. (laughs) That's for the answer. So why don't we start off, uh, evils of the night. Let's take a little trip back to 1985 when this came out uh this came out in october so i mean it was at least timed well you know i mean i would have definitely uh eaten this up as an october you know night at the drive-in if uh those were mm-hmm. um you know go well at least if you were in the right state where that was still a thing in october um yeah uh, and illinois it was, I was gonna say, in the 80s still yeah, midwest you know. it's about the mm-hmm. far north that you could go for that kind of temperature yeah, um, but let's see here really quick. I do want to shout out. There was actually not a lot of movies, or at least I should say notable movies that came out in that month of 1985. But, uh, I will say that Commando <laughs> starring, Ooh. uh, yeah, Mr. Schwarzenegger himself, uh, came Turned out. Alyssa Milano. You know, oh, well, of course. It, well, a, a very young. I mean, she was a kid. <laughs> it was a child actor. Yeah. yeah and, anyway. um, the only other thing that, uh, I think Dan will get a kick out of because it may or may not have had an influence on our own logo was reanimator <gasps> came out yes. October of 1985. That's awesome. Uh, I love Stuart Gordon uh, as a director. Um, I think he's uh, unfortunately unheralded, but he's kind of gone his own way. So he, he often kind of, he's, he's sort of like Joe Dante or one of those guys where he's, he's really created this fascinating unique body of work but it's not exactly the the one that gets the most respect all the time because it's, it's odd and you know but yeah yeah that our our project exploitation logo is definitely um meant to uh be an homage to the reanimator logo so yeah from the posters yeah mm-hmm. and the reason why i uh narrow it down to just a month is because uh from what i could find there were conflicting reports as to when it came out in october but uh, everybody had it down in that month. So I was kind of opening up wide. Um, the only other thing I'll actually give a shout out now that I see it too was uh, on Halloween that uh, that month, uh, the sequel 
to A Nightmare on Elm Street. A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, did come out. Uh, and you know what? That's a oh, wow. very underrated uh, horror sequel. In fact, it's usually pretty maligned. Uh, there, there's a lot of interesting uh, sexual subtext going on in that movie, uh, particularly with closeted homosexuality and, and other things. Oh, really? Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a pretty. It's actually a pretty great flick. Um, but a lot of people wanted Freddy to be, you know the star and that just wasn't the case in that sequel he very much became the star uh starting in number three and moving forward sure but sure so three was uh three was the dream warriors yeah three is dream warriors which is one of my all-time favorite movies so it's not so much that i'm a huge two fan but i do think two is underrated but dream warriors if you haven't seen dream warriors uh I don't know why you're listening to this podcast if you haven't already, especially about this movie that we're going to talk about. Dream Warriors is better than <laughs> Evils of a Night. I'll just say it up front. How dare you? I know. I know. Uh, so let's get on to Evils of a Night itself. Oh, boy. What a production. So it is, as we said, came out in 1985. Uh, it was directed by Marty Rustum, and it stars a lot of people. Uh, before I mention the elderly people, I should say, are middle-aged, uh, all of the youngins are pretty much unknowns and or just did not do much uh, circa that era and and beyond. The, the notable actors are all of the people who are over the hill. And of course, in that lineup, you have John Carradine, Julie Newmar, and Tina Louise, and even the two henchmen, uh, Aldo uh, Ray and Neville Brand, were very prolific on television uh, uh, yeah. You know, with Playhouse uh, 90 and a bunch of guest stars on a bunch of different shows that I won't get into. But it, it I mean, it's so weird how that deck is so stacked um, compared to all of it. Now, I get, you know, it's hard to find young talent, especially for a budget like movie like this. And have them be somebody because you know the older you get the more exposure you have but none of them really went on to do even movies like this because a lot of times you know you'll be like oh that person is also in that other shitty camping movie from <laughs> like the same era whatever but most of these people did not uh go on to do much ironically who kind of overshadows them uh, as far as star power goes is that this movie famously does feature actual porn stars from the 80s um True. amber lynn and uh jerry butler and crystal breeze makes an appearance uh all mostly well crystal breeze only in the opening scene as one of the couples who has a very weird sex against a tree where the guy never pulls down his pants and yet yes. they're like gyrating and i'm i mean i've seen softcore porn that is more like uh what do i want to say um chased no i was gonna say just more convincing <laughs> uh oh. you know just that you know like what i'm watching is what i'm watching but there it was almost like uh it was like they were behind saying well fix it in post even though that just wasn't possible uh, but uh, Amber Lynn and uh, Jerry Butler, though, do kind of survive the night for at least half the movie because uh, they're the ones who are fooling around at every turn, uh, inc- including the abandoned house and uh, randomly on the beach when uh, Amber Lynn's character gets very upset that he's looking at two women who are oiling each other up. 
um, in a way that suggests that they are more than friends, despite the fact that their demeanor says that they're just best friends. So a lot of mixed signals uh, here in Evil Dead mm-hmm. the Night, and we'll get into all of them, of course. <laughs> but those are pretty much the heavy hitters. I looked through the crew, and I looked through, and I didn't really see a lot of uh, recurring talent behind the scenes, so I'm not going to go through them all. The only person I saw that uh, weirdly had a lot of credits to their name was the person who did the music, Robert O. Raglan, because he did the music for a lot of cult filmmakers, uh, including Larry Cohan and uh, William Girdler, and so he had actually done quite a lot of music. Um, Ten to Midnight, he did Q, uh, A Time wow. to Die. Yeah, so... Um, and, and many, many more than that too, but that was just a few. So the composer, they, they, and you know what? I got to say the score is one of my particular favorite parts of the movie. So nice. Nice. Yeah. So let me open this up and say, Dan, two questions for you. Okay. I'm going (laughs) to micro and macro. All right. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to, but I'm going to shoot them out at a time and you can answer them both after I've got done. Here we go. My macro question, of course, is what are your opening thoughts on Evil Dead the Night? And my micro question, just to really probe deep into this film's heart, is what do you think the significance is of naming one of the couples Ron and Nancy? Please, your thoughts. Uh, can I take the second part of the question first and then the first part? Yes. Of the, no, uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the Ron and Nancy thing is actually, I think, one of the cleverer parts in the movie. And I didn't catch it until after they go missing and the other three campers are out looking for them. And they're like, Ron, Nancy. That's Which, when I was like, wait a minute. What? Yeah. I know. I was like, oh, devilishly clever, you Marty. How de- <laughs> Just when I had counted you out. <laughs> no, but I love that. And I mean, honestly, well... I'll talk more about that later. But my my opening thoughts are, um, I mean, you know, it has all the trappings and not all, many of the trappings and cliches of the era. And I say this with a certain amount of love because this was definitely, these are definitely films that I do enjoy, even when they're not good at all. Uh, but, you know, it's got the stiff expository dialogue like, yes, Nancy, let's go get a pop, you know, or whatever. And I also heard that was true. Or uh, my favorite, which is at the beginning, the guy she brings back to the joint and he's like, all right, now we can get high. <laughs> just, that yeah, one just it's like just saying me. every thought out loud. Yes, yes. In order for us to really understand this person's name is Nancy, this person's name is, yeah. And, you know, the stuff like, what was that sound with the coyote howl? Hmm. And, you know, and and I scarcely believe I even have to say this, but when being approached by two men in ski masks who have already obviously abducted you because you've woken up in a new location, you really shouldn't lead with, hey, guys, what's going on? <laughs> like, It's you, a you fair question. Just, I mean, you either got to run, you got to fight or flight, but I mean, sit going, Hey guys, what's going on? I mean, it's oh, like a lot of characters na- in this movie, uh, do not run when they should oh, like true. the entire drill bit death, uh, mm-hmm. could have been avoided. <laughs> yes. Yes. With just a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, locomotion on the part of, uh, Connie. Yes. That could have yes. been avoided. Uh, but, you know, there's a, but again, that's, you know, the not running thing is also a, a, a hallmark of the era. Um, you know, those like I always think about those pained, like extended shots of people laughing for far longer than they ought to. It's like those frozen 
like rictuses of death, you know, or maybe it looks like they got a lure caught in their mouth and their cheek and they're like, yeah, and it's like, you just know they're like, this is not natural at all. Why is the director making me laugh for like half a minute about something that was barely worth a chuckle? So, oh, and then, you know, there's stuff like the silhouette of the knife, which never appears later. And there's no reference to that later. It's like, so, but you got silhouette of the knife, check. You got, you know, scaring girls with a reptile, check. You got, um, you know, the threat of lesbianism at every turn, like you were talking about. And, you know, by the way, I think the most inventive of those was the scene where the two alien orderlies in those tiny silver costumes, which, speaking of Rocky Horror, look yes. a lot like Magenta's cosmic outfit at the end. They, like, start kind of making that, out. Yeah, they have a moment. They do. I <laughs> and mean, then it, the movie never extrapolates from that point on. No, it's <laughs> like, I just kept thinking, alien love, like in Bowfinger. He's like, why did you say alien love? And, and, but it's it's so funny because it's like, they're right in the middle of their shift. Do they have any sense of professionalism and pride in their job? I mean, th this whole thing about extracting the platelets is to save their species. And these two are going to start necking on well, a see, bench. The problem is they need the platelets to, you know, preserve their youngness. But the danger of that is, you know, once you're experiencing it, you know, then you have young lust, I think. I think that's what they were going True. for. It's like, you know, the monkey's paw situation with teenage hormones. Right. It is double-edged. You know, it's like, okay, you know, we're bringing your son back from the dead, but he's going to be zombified, you know, in the end of monkey's paw. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, the two gals are very fetching and it's a sweet, actually little scene because they don't really go very far into it. But it's just kind of funny, like right at the beginning, it's like, hmm. Yep. And there's, you know, there's like three or four times like that where there's kind of the, the threat of lesbianism, as I like to say, you know, uh, that sort of, oh, lesbian panic, but at the same time, well, we're going to kind of flirt with it a little, you know? Uh, but then there's other stuff like, um, well, you mentioned going in the creepy house to fuck, which never makes sense to me. I mean, it's like, you, don't you have a car? But, and then uh, I think, honestly, and, and speaking of somebody who's written songs for people over the years, you know, for companies and just, you know, for hire, um, and there's something about those 80s bespoke songs that were written, you know, bespoke for the film, right? And they're just people, God bless them, and I'm not trying to disparage them too much because it's hard to write on a deadline, especially if your heart's not into it. But they're just like, these, these songs from this era, it's like, they're like people maybe in their late 40s who are just like trying to do their best approximation of what the kids are into nowadays, you know? So they got like, there's this one song that like, boys will be boys. We've got the rhythm on the that street. That song is amazing. Yeah. Turning up the heat. You know, you know, the eighties. And again, I say this not without some affection, but the eighties, eighties pop, you know, particularly songs from films, there was this weird preoccupation with heat and streets and the beat of the streets and the beat of the heat and just, it's odd. It's an odd thing. So, which is fine, but you know, and then of course there's that duet, which was actually featured in the opening credits. Like as if this is like, this is a major, you know, um, this is a major showcase moment, you know, it, it's like there, you know, the irony of the two people making out in the, you know, in the, in the house. And they've got this thing about like, we found a place to hide. And I'm like, well, that's kind of ironic considering they obviously are, about to be abducted and uh oh and, and also okay one, one last thing about this the opening credits the song's called that's all right every night 
And I don't know if you noticed this, but the credits, the singers are Eddie Mecca, uh, Delise Lively Mecca, and Eddie Mecca again. Like he had to be credited twice for no reason. Like that's a huge typo. Maybe it was recorded in stereo. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. He's like, I double tracked my vocals. So that means I'm (laughs) on here twice, twice people. I work hard. No. Uh, so anyway, I just, that struck me in the opening credits and I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to the song really carefully. Maybe there's something to this that I'm not catching. And nope, nope. I, I think it was just a mistake. And again, I'm not trying to make too much fun because it's so hard to complete anything, especially a feature film that requires the, the services of all of these people, you know? And, but just like, how, why, why was he credited twice? I just don't get it. It's not like he was credited once as the songwriter either. It was written by two other guys, but he's credited as the singer in this duet. And yet there's a third person, which it's not a duet anymore. You know, it's just, I don't know. So perhaps I'm, I'm thinking too much about this. Maybe. (laughs) So that's kind of my opening thoughts, I would say. Well, right on. I okay. So I watched this movie for the first time a few years ago when I first got into uh, the company Vinegar Syndrome, who has put out a lovely uh, Blu-ray of this. Mm-hmm. And um, I watched it then, and I remember it being fun, but extremely slight. Like nothing I would actually recommend to anybody. But I didn't hate myself for watching it. You know, sure. that kind of a middle brow whatever so it has been a while and obviously a movie like this where nothing really matters and nothing makes sense i <laughs> mostly forgotten just about any detail of it so when we first said we were gonna do this right after we recorded the last episode i i for some weird reason got really pumped to watch it and i watched it like the night of when we recorded the last thing oh really yeah or the night after but it was like right then and there and what I did was I watched it then, but I will admit that I was not paying very close attention, which I think is completely understandable for a movie like this. But what ended up happening was then, uh, because I wasn't quite paying attention, uh, I had to rewatch it this week. So I watched it twice now in the last like week just to make sure I got all those sweet, sweet plot details. See, um, that's professionalism right there, my well, friend. You know, you could have half-assed case, it. You could have phoned this it case, in. It's but. more like torture. But I, I waffle between where I stand on this movie because part of me thinks this is like a failure, not a complete abject waste of time, but just it doesn't work, you know, whatever. Right. And part of me thinks that technically... I get by, you know, from start to finish. Like, I don't necessarily have a desire to turn it off. So despite the fact that none of the acting here is serviceable and the plot itself, it doesn't even... I mean, I think the biggest failure of this movie for me is that this is a sci-fi film with no sci-fi. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, at the very least, if you're going to do a horror movie, do a horror movie. And like like you said, with the silhouette of a knife, because there's not much to that as far as plot-wise. You just need a guy with a knife. But here, we have a disco light starship, and then <laughs> we have the interior set dressing of a hospital, and a few people standing around in silver clothing that honestly doesn't distinguish them as... Uh, anything but product of the 80s and 
when I watch it, I'm like, if there was just like 10%, maybe 20% more sci-fi trapping, you know, like, um, like if they had contact with the aliens up above, or if there was just a few more technology thing, and I don't mean budget wise, I'm talking like a cardboard cutout of a ray gun, or just sure. something other than their one little rent, whatever. If this was a little more committed to his half-assed sci-fi trek, I actually think this would be pretty fun, pretty earnest. As it stands, um, I think it's just a pretty hollow attempt to cash in on the slasher craze by a director who has no interest in horror films. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that's the biggest thing. And, um, you know, Marty Rustin, he had said in an interview that, he was inspired or most influenced by the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still. And to me, that's bullshit yeah. because I agree. I heard that, too. And I'm like, why? Yeah. How? That's like yeah. making a drama and saying you were inspired by Citizen Kane. It's like, OK, <laughs> Uh, not even just because of like sheer quality, but just like, OK, so you choose like one of the most, you know, foundational dram dramatic texts in whatever. But like there's no real correlation between what he's doing or even an attempt uh, to mimic that even on a lower budget. And honestly, what explains this movie, I'm going to get into it really quick on a tangent, Go ahead. is the production behind it. And I'm going to pull back that current, which is not uh a uh, hard thing to find out by any means, but for those who don't know, this is actually the second time he's made this movie. <laughs> ah. So there was a movie back in the 70s called Evil Town. It never got released, but it was a script and attached to direct was Curtis Hansen, director, future director of L.A. Confidential. Whoa. Right? Yeah. Yeah, Wonder it's Boys. a very weird. Yeah, great director. Yeah. Yeah, um, but just a very weird pairing right there. And obviously it didn't last long, so that's how weird it was. But he was attached to direct a script with the whole cast of characters um, that had to do with a bunch of uh, children, not children, a bunch of teenagers driving into a, a literal evil town where a bunch of elderly people kind of like, sort of like, come on in and do the whole Hansel and Gretel thing to them. Uh, but it was like... Uh, at large it was the entire community was bad whatever okay curtis hansen reportedly maybe only shot a few scenes total before backing out of the project completely and then another director stepped in uh larry spiegel um who i'm not as familiar with but he stepped in pretty much completed it he, he did a few rewrites um he said he didn't quite even use anything curtis shot but it was the same it was the same cast same script you know whatever uh, just made it his thing whatever and then the movie never got released and that's 1975 okay in 1983 marty rustin buys the rights to the footage and to the movie itself and he decides instead of just releasing it um he decides that he's going to film additional sequences to add into the original movie, Evil Town, that was never released. Oh, wow. And his subplot, okay, is uh, a bunch of other teens, not the same team, because this is now <laughs> eight years later, uh, driving in supposedly to the same town, even though it's not shot in the same place at all. Uh, <laughs> and he wanted to make a movie called Dr. Shagetz. 
and and not sci-fi, but have it be a mad doctor who wants blood transfusion from, and that's why there's a hospital or whatever. And so he uses the same hospital interior, uh, and everybody, even though he didn't reuse the cast at all, but in 83, 84, he had two mechanics all dressed in blue who were evil, who do the bidding of the doctor and his two cohorts, uh, a bunch of... Uh, you know, teens having sex when they're not supposed to be uh, a literal helium voice bimbo, which we also have in Evils of the Night True. Uh, as one of the two, the one Connie, you know, whatever. Uh, so it's and it's so weird because that is grafted on. So imagine an Evil of the Night that only lasts about 30 minutes, but intersped throughout this other movie. And that's what evil town is. Wow. And those two films never really make sense together, but they always try to like, there's even a scene in evil town because evil town eventually got released in 87. So because it never got released at first, he was like, well, I guess I'll make my, my own real one. You know, after he did it, then he reshot basically the same scene and shot like about an hour's worth of more footage with other actors and got uh, the three uh, marquee actors, you know, with Julie Newmar and uh, Carradine and Tina Louise and was hoping that would get it released. It did. And then Evil Town got released two years after that. And so it's just one of the strangest roads to production ever and frankly i think that kind of speaks for itself i think when you watch evils of the night even if it's a slightly better movie than something like evil town that's only by you know just sheer logic of the fact that evil town is two movies competing at one where at least evils of the night sucks as just one movie um but I think he was just so gung-ho about this idea that he had that he was going to make it no matter what. And you know what? I give him credit for that. Uh, I, I would do the same thing. Um, and, you know, I I have fun with this. I, there are certain things in here that are just... I. Uh, God got stuck in my head like every time the two girls would go shut up Brian oh, yeah. um, I just like you know what Brian's trying his hardest here he's being flirty but not chauvinistic and right. uh, by the time he gets in the garage I gotta say Brian is my MVP of this movie because when they're in the garage up until that point no one had really been trying acting wise but every time they every time they cut to him in the garage and he's like uh, he's like, because he touched you, I swear to God, I'll kill that son of a mm-hmm. bitch. And it's like, whoa, Brian, where was this rain? You know, whatever. Right, right. And he's kind of in some ways the most sensible one, too. Like, he's like, well, if we were anywhere, anybody could hear us, they would have gagged us. And I'm like, well, that's a chilling thought and rather astute. Yeah. Very astute yeah, yeah. comment from Brian, you know. It's like no, he's I mean, someone uh, gets serious, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, Brian's like the only one here that's like actually smart enough, I think, to survive, even though he, uh, wait, did he or not? I he, honestly he can barely, he does. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which he made and, uh, Heather, I believe. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, overall, I got to say the, for the most part, this movie does not work, but that doesn't mean that I personally don't enjoy it. It's like the bare minimum of enjoyment. But there are other movies that truly did bore me to tears. And unfortunately, I don't care that the spaghetti is uncooked. It sticks to the wall for me because, yeah, uh, 
we're going to watch two minutes of softcore porn, and then we're going to watch two minutes of three acting greats uh, debase themselves in Sober <laughs> Susan. Then we're going to watch two minutes of uh, proto-slasher, you know, campaign, and then we're going to watch two minutes, and, and it just keeps going on like that. And uh, honestly, it's a recipe for disaster, but, uh, you know, it was compulsively watchable all, all the same, for me at least, so... Yeah, I'm I'm with you on this. Um, I, I definitely did not get overly bored at any point. I mean, you know, the pacing can be a little sluggish at times, but it's not bad considering the materials they had. And, you know, the thing is, and I realized while I was watching this that, you know, most people um, who are not used to seeing these kinds of things like we are, you know, will probably be so distracted by the lack of quality, it'll be like a bright, shiny object that distracts them from seeing the occasional elements here and there that are, like, interesting or unusual or imaginative. Yeah. So, and I know there's going to be the people who are like, well, it's so it's so bad, it's good. But here's the thing. You and I, my friend, we've, we've been through that, and that is not our fate, because you and I have seen so many films in this style, and we're gonna, we can find the good stuff in here that other people, through no fault of their own, maybe aren't seasoned enough in beam films and exploitation to really see it. You know? I will say that I would not show this movie to people who want to have a bad movie night. Yes. And I think my, I would say my impulse to not show it pretty much says that it's not that bad. Like, it doesn't really work or whatever but it's not something that really sits on the floor as laughably bad uh it's more just earnestly embarrassing than it is uh inept yeah there aren't like pull out all the stops horrible moments like in i don't know like the room or something like that where you're like oh here it comes yep. oh why did why did they make this choice but he did yep. he made that choice <laughs> you know but no i agree and, and but there are a lot of elements that can really run the gamut between, you know, like I said, you know, interesting. I, I was looking for an interesting, unusual, imaginative, you know, a, a choice where they could have zagged and they zagged, you know, like uh, there's a lot of, inter you know, there's a lot of interesting 80s stuff like the, uh, like you said, the naming Ron and Nancy, <laughs> or even just the idea of the space vampires removing young humans blood for the platelets. It's, it someone has an AIDS panic subtext to it, which was certainly on people's mind you, by 1985. You know yeah. what? I will say that that thought did occur to me. Um, and, it's one of those things where you have to wrestle with, did they actually intend that though? You know, it's like Perhaps nothing not, else no. about this product. And, and no, but I'm with you in that mm -hmm. it's, I think it's always fascinating to think about it because technically, you know, those kind of epidemics and those kind of national stories or whatever do seep into the cultural consciousness. So Definitely. intentional or not, uh, it can inform uh, pop culture at the time. So I don't think it's completely without merit that, that could also be as to how it even made into, especially if you look at, you know, him doing it to be, uh, shall we say, like the space vampires is the idea he came up with like 85. But a few years prior, he was just doing medical experiments and it almost looks like, you know, what changed something changed in the world, you know, from one idea to the next, because otherwise he could have just remade a movie that at the time was not going to be released. So, sure. Um I, I definitely think that there's definitely something to that. Um, I mean, one thing I'll say about the movie that's genuinely good is that when there is moments of gore, it's actually really good. Um, yeah, true. Surprisingly the, so. The drill. Yeah. Like, it, it, there's not that much of it, but when there is, 
Um, you know, the drill bit scene is like genuinely memorable, like for being a pretty shitty movie. I'm that's one thing I remembered when I was going to rewatch it. I was like, oh, yeah, this is the movie where <laughs> that happened. And, um, <laughs> you know, rewatching it, the uh, the death by the uh, car squishing of whatever the f- not the forklift but oh the car uh, lift. yes yes the uh yeah the car lift yeah yeah uh you know and there are a few other things in there where i'm like you know that's one thing that they obviously spent the budget on besides the the trio of actors so i i appreciate that and i do think that that does i mean that's that's why you watch these things so the gore itself i thought was pretty good yeah i agree i mean there's a lot of little funky things in here like that kind of um well, I think it's a joke, that fiendishly funny little joke on autoerotic asphyxiation where the boyfriend is being choked to death while having sex. Yes. And, which, I, honestly, it reminded me, and I, I just want to mention this because I think it's a cool movie that very few people have seen, but it reminds me of a scene from a 2003 flick called 1114. So it's like a time, 1114, oh, yeah. you know? Love that movie. Yeah. Oh, see, I should have known you too. <laughs> very talented director, a guy named Eric Marks, who sadly hasn't done really anything since, which may or may not have to do with his unfortunate resemblance to Jared Kushner. I tracked that movie down specifically because I was at the time going through a Rashomon phase. So ah. I was trying to find anything I could, and that's how I heard about it, was anything I could that had any kind of differing uh, multiple perspectives type thing. Right. Anyway. Right, right, right. No, you're absolutely right. But I mean, I don't know if you remember, but there's this scene involving Rachel Lee Cook in a graveyard where she's cowgirling her way mm. into an orgasm. Yes. Which goes... I do remember that scene for some reason when I was 14. Right. It's the craziest thing. I don't know. I, I don't know why I remember it, too. It's just something about it just was memorable. It was just... Mm. Very, you know, I just, uh, anyway, um, so, but, but yeah, she basically, the moment she goes over the top is from her boyfriend's death spasms due to unknowingly to her, yes. his head being crushed accidentally by a tombstone. Yes. And I thought, wow, this is kind of, I don't know. I just, I, I enjoyed that. No, it's, the, it's literally the, what it, the, the little death or whatever. Or, yes. Yes. Yeah. The French uh, refer to it as the little death. Yeah. Yes. Uh, which, you know, the other thing I remember about that movie is someone getting their dick cut off or shot off or something. Yes, there but was something. There's about a subplot that. about that. So if that sounds like your bag, uh, Project <laughs> Exploitation gives it two thumbs up. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I actually was like, oh, I think I'd like to watch that again because I own it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like I wanted to like make sure I got the year it came out and everything right. So I pulled it out to look at, you know, I didn't watch yeah. it, but I mean, you know. But, uh, you know, and the, there's actually another thing about this film, Evils of the Night, I mean, is that the uh, editing, I thought, had a couple really nice, really intriguing moments. Like, there's the cut where Billy is being zapped at night because he's trying to escape near the beginning. And it cuts to a slow motion shot of who we later learn is Nancy and Ron uh, surfacing in the yeah, lake. Yeah, from the, from the lake. Right. So it's like night today and it's slow motion and it was so jarring. It reminded me of some of those like um, chronological ellipses, ellipses, I should say, that Nicholas Rogue does, especially for obvious reason, a particular scene in The Man Who Fell to Earth where Bernie Casey is emerging out of a pool in slow motion. And it's right after like this big, essentially the climax of the film where he is going to go into space and then at the last minute it stopped and they kill Buck Henry's character. And then all of a sudden you cut and you're like, wait, I don't even know how much time's passed. I don't know where we are. And it's just you seeing this guy slow motion emerging from a pool. And I thought that was pretty good. I, I, I thought, you know, that was nice. I thought some of the other 
little elisions, which again may have been budgetary reasons, but I thought it worked. They didn't have to go through the whole rigmarole of, oh well, you know, well, let's go look for him. Oh no, Ron and Nancy aren't here. What's the deal? They cut. They cut right to yeah. them going. Oh, hey, where are you? you yeah, know, I mean, so many movies bitch. of the '80s would also show you scenes of all those teenagers driving to the beach. Instead of right. just saying, okay, here here they are. They're already here, and they're already horny. Like, you know, at, at a certain point, sometimes shorthand uh, and brevity is uh, a credit to these kind of movies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, there's even stuff like Brian, when he's hitchhiking, he gets in with Tina Louise, and then immediately they show him tied up. You know what I mean? And I, I, I it could be the ellipses in some cases were sort of like, you know, I mean, you know I'm a big fan of uh, Seijun Suzuki, where... Basically, his aesthetics were partly formed because the uh, uh, studio couldn't stand his movies, so they kept giving him less money to try to like dissuade him from doing weird shit. So he just got weirder. He's like, fine, I won't do any setup shots anymore. I'm just going to go straight to the close-ups and weird lighting, and you know, I'm only going to show this part of the room for the whole thing. So I'm wondering if there's some aesthetic uh, reason out of necessity, you know? Um, and there's a you know there's like some pretty elegant camera movements in this like there's one that's a really nice long one right when they were first in in the garage, and they start on Connie, uh, start on Connie's legs incidentally, and then they kind of go and they do this sort of like slow truck around all of them and it's pretty well done and the actors really hit their beats at the right moment when the camera's coming back you know and it's, it was. I will say I'm with you there in that uh, one thing I did kind of take note of was the cinematography, not in a, uh, you know, earth shattering way, but so many times in movies like this, you have just shot, reverse shot, establishing shot and just nothing, you know, like outside of that. And here I, you know, I counted on more than just how many fingers I have on each hand. Uh, shots that did not simply stay either stationary uh, or, uh, you know, just zoom-ins or whatever. This was an actual kinetic movie, um, which I think really carried a lot of the lackluster plotting and uh, characterization and acting. Yeah, agreed. I mean, the cinematography, whoever the cinematographer was, I mean, there was definitely a feeling like he was, he really gave a damn, you know, and also with the lighting. Well, that was a person named Don Stern. Okay. You know, in the extras, I remember um, they mentioned him, but I, I got the feeling. Maybe... I believe he's, they said that he had won an Academy Award or was nominated. Oh, wow. Um, for a move, not for this, obviously, sure. but uh, for a movie. I'm going to look that up for a second. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Here. While you keep going, but... Sure. Uh, Well, another thing I thought was interesting is at first I thought the film was going to totally dispense with the whole only the virgin survives, sex equals death trope you usually find in these kind of films. But then they sort of copped out and they did it anyway. Although I have no idea where poor Connie had to die. You know, she wasn't... She didn't have sex, so I don't know. But on that subject, it was... No, but she ate that banana, so... (laughs) True, she did. True, and that was enough to send her to death. No, uh, but on that subject, it is cool when they that, that there were times where they actually gave the characters like an unexpectedly long and normal amount of time to grieve. Like Brian and Heather react like normal human beings when they see Connie basically drilled to death. I mean, that's that's like they're not like, oh, well, whatever. And, you know, in the fact that they were cross cutting between them grieving and you see Nancy grieving for Ron in the in the morgue or whatever it is, you know, where she realizes her boyfriend's de- or fiance is dead. That was like surprisingly soulful 
for a movie that didn't need to um, do that. Honestly, one of the other marks against this movie is that I think the young people uh, outshine their more experienced and way more esteemed mm -hmm. uh, comrades. Oh, yeah. Because every, every scene in the hospital is dull as can be. And I say that as someone who wants to see those kind of sci-fi movies, mm -hmm. um, but at least those young spirited teenagers are actually giving it their all, uh, even if it's not great at times. I agree. Uh, actually, well, uh, yeah, I'll talk about that in a second. I, I suppose I also, should. Also, I completely lied when I said the Can one guy. I know uh, Marty Rustman mentioned somebody who worked on the movie was nominated for an Academy Award for something, but it was not the cinematographer. So forget that. Well, that's all right. I will say though, I thought the cinematographer did a good job both with setting up the shots and with the, um, uh, with the, the lighting, actually the lighting is, is very good. I mean, a lot of these kind of lower budget films, lighting and sound tend to get short shrift. And I felt like that wasn't the case with these, I felt, which was nice, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, and this is more of a story thing than a technical thing, but I thought it was interesting. And again, maybe this has to do with the piecemeal nature of the movie as you were describing it, how it was made. But I really thought it was interesting the way the filmmakers kept introducing new characters and then they would kill or kidnap them or something. And then it made the narrative feel kind of like, uh, like pleasantly unstable, which I like, you know, because we keep thinking we've settled on some protagonists and then, nope, there's more of them or they got killed. You know, like you think about how many characters were introduced to just in the first few minutes that aren't really around for much longer. Yeah, you don't usually offer up like two couples and kill them both off. Like, what is the right. point of simultaneous, you know, whatever. But they did, right. and it works. <laughs> I know, but it, it does make it feel a little unstable. Like, I don't know what's going to happen next. Like, honestly, for a while, when I started seeing the scenes where there was this silhouette stalking the uh, the two porn stars in the, um, in the old creepy house, I honestly started to dig the possible notion that this plot may contain both a serial killer and vampire aliens separately killing people like the screenwriters were just like, yeah, we're that nihilistic. That's that's how awful the world is. You're going to get a serial killer and vampire aliens at the same time because that's life. You I mean, know? it would have been more exciting than what the aliens had cooked up. Honestly, it would have, and it would have, it would have explained that freaking knife, that butcher's knife, which appeared for no reason. And then, yeah. Anyway, you know, sorry. I wonder about the knife uh, on the Blu-ray. Uh, the, that vinegar syndrome put out and i watched the first 10 minutes uh there is a tv edit which has yes eight minutes worth of additional f no no it's eight minutes longer and it removes everything involving amber lynn's character which is a good i mean at least 10 ish minutes maybe eight minutes of so of footage so that means there's got to be upwards of about 15 additional minutes because the cut itself is eight minutes longer. Um, and I watched the first 10 minutes of it and it was radically different already. So oh, wow. maybe the knife comes up in the TV edit and, uh, you know, one of these days we'll watch that. Uh, but yeah, it's a bonus feature for anyone who has the disc. We should do that sometime. We should make a night of it because, I mean, this may not be something where it's like we need to rush and watch it, but it might be something fun to have on while we're talking or whatever. I was going to just, when I went to rewatch it, I'm like, you know what? I'll watch the TV edit. Um, 
because that way it's like I'm rewatching it, but I'm also getting, you know, to that knowledge experience. But then it was so radically different that I'm like, I'm going to have bad, like, it's not going to work <laughs> if I'm only remembering a movie that's actually quite different than, I mean, it would have been the same, <laughs> but still, I decided to switch over to the regular movie because of how different it was. So, yeah, I definitely think we should give it a try. All right, cool. Yeah, it would have been funny if it was so radically different that you and I are sitting here talking and I'm, and you're like, so it was crazy how that purple hippopotamus appeared out of nowhere. Nowhere and yeah. ate that jazz singer, and we're and I'm like I that no. Hmm, I thought it went too far they, when they had Julie Newmar meow, but uh, <laughs> I honestly, you know, I kept waiting. But it anyway. So okay. So speaking of performances, um, yes. The, again, speaking, you know, like pacing and the idea of introducing characters. Like I felt like it was a pretty big shock when it was about like. Maybe it was less than this, but it felt like 40-some minutes in, suddenly we realized that we were going to actually meet and get to know the kidnappers. Like, we're going to know their names, and we're going to see their faces. I just assumed it was going to be two flunkies and ski masks. And then I didn't realize that it was also the two guys who, in my opinion, are probably giving the best performances in the film. And I mean, I know that's a critic's cliche to say, oh, well, this, you know, Sir John Gielgud acquits himself marvelously, but... You know, Richard Grieco is a terrible actor, you know, or whatever. I mean, it's like, well, yeah, yeah, of course, he's he's been doing it for decades. But but these guys, there's just such a natural. I mean, it's not natural, like realistic, but there's a natural kind of rapport between them, which I really enjoyed. And it was such a relief after seeing some of the more, you know, stiffer performances. And I'm including like Karenina Newmar and, and, and Louise in that, too, you know, but um I do want to say a couple of things about Neville Brand. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, he's, he plays Kurt and Elder Ray plays, plays Fred. I don't know a whole lot about Elder Ray, but Neville Brand has been in several movies, which I love. Um, and, and the other thing I always think of, the, like, oddly enough, the, a few years ago, I was on a uh, uh, some sort of film noir site uh, on Facebook, and I they were talking about people who were actors who had served in World War II with distinction. And whenever I think of Neville Brand now, I, I realize he's like kind of one of the major war heroes from World War II to end up acting. It's like he got the Silver Star for taking out like a cabin full of Nazis with a machine gun um, by himself. Like the only other guy I can think of is Sterling Hayden. He got the Silver Star because he was in oh, Yugoslavia yeah. and all that. But I mean, you got a lot of actors. You got like, you know, Robert Ryan, Lee Marvin, you know, Jason Robards, of course, that's famous because I mean, that's where some of the many of the ideas for the master came from. Jason Robards regaling, you know, Anderson stories yeah. about uh, Jack Pounds, Henry Fonda. But I mean, these guys weren't as decorated as Neville Brand. This guy was like an honest to God, like genuine American hero. And he was also in a ton of great movies, but he was almost never the lead. Like the one thing I saw him in where he was the lead, which I love, is a movie called Riot in Cell Block 11 from 1954. Oh, yeah. He was in that? He's the lead. He's like... And oh, it's funny man, because, and I've seen that too, but I didn't put that together. Well, you know, it's funny because he's got that kind of rough, chiseled face. He kind of looks like a thug almost or a... And, and But in Riot in Cell Block 11, he's super smart, too. Like, he's actually leading the prisoners, and he's negotiating. So it's kind of interesting to see this guy who normally they would go, okay, you know, you got looks straight out of central casting. We're going to make you kind of a, a dope or a violent guy. But he's actually quite a bit better than that. And uh, Don Siegel directed it. I mean, it's definitely, I mean... If we ever wanted to break our rule, uh, I would say that would be a prison movie to watch, even though it's from the 50s, technically. 
But he was in a ton of stuff. He was in Where the Sidewalk Ends in Kansas City Confidential and Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye. And he was in Stalag 17, Birdman of Alcatraz. Hmm. Uh, he, he was in this, he's hilarious in this movie called The Ninth Configuration, which is from 1980. It's a really weird movie. And he is so freaking funny because he's like the one officer. It's basically a mental asylum for military people who have essentially what we would call PTSD. And he's the one guy, he's the guy in charge who's trying to maintain order. And it's just hysterical because he's just not, you just see him cringing every few seconds. Like, uh, you know, like this is the, the shittiest assignment he's ever had. You know? <laughs> and apparently this was his last uh, on-screen role, which is, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's unfortunate because this movie is not very good. And yet it is a testament to him that I, I pretty much would agree with you that those two are the most like, consistently on point <laughs> with regards to their characters and why they're there and whatnot. And to the point where I had even, I didn't take a lot of notes, but on my phone when referring to uh, Neville and Aldo and their characters, I wrote uh exploitation meets char. Uh, what is it? Um, what, what, Oh, uh, charter thing called the cot, you know, the <laughs> British duo yes. who appear in a bunch of uh, movies from the thirties and forties, you know, oh, like oh, they're yeah, just yeah. these, Oh, right. Like in uh, night, like the lady Munich. vanishes. Yeah. The yeah. Lady, oh yeah. I love those guys. God, they're so but good. I'm like, you know, it's like, they're just like this weird, perverted <laughs> and depraved version of like bumbling uh, farce and whatever. And yeah, I, I think for the most part, uh, That's a great they, comparison. They I love that. Well. I love that idea, <laughs> yeah. that comparison between those the Hicks exploitation and that. I mean, that's just genius. <laughs> uh, but you're right. It was his last role, sadly. And uh, shockingly, this was not John Carradine's last role. I mean, okay, so first of all, we should say, you know, we should talk about the thing everybody is curious about. Of course, the question on everyone's mind is, is he the father of David Carradine from Death Race 2000? Yes. Yes, he is. As well as Keith and Robert and... But, you know, apparently it's several children. But so here's a guy who's like one of the most like lauded, like greatest supporting actors in the history of film. I mean, he's in like freaking Bride of Frankenstein, Ten Commandments, Stagecoach, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. He plays one of the probably I've never the, heard of any of those. movies. Oh, well, then never mind. <laughs> I mean, he's got the probably my favorite role in The Grapes of Wrath. Um, you know, The Last Hurrah. He's in Fritz Lang's Manhunt. Um He's in like a couple Mr. Moto movies that Peter Lorre did. I mean, it's just the guy was everywhere. He was in Scorsese's first studio movie, Boxcar Bertha. Uh, he was the voice of the owl in The Secret of Frickin' Nim. I mean, the guy was a legend. And I don't know why he did all these awful movies. It's like he didn't need why the money. Why is that to you? I'm like, it, it, that's... That's the Carradine gene, basically. <laughs> Once these became uh, viable, uh, I feel like you were disowned from the family if you did not partake uh, in these B-movies. It's kind of an interesting point, because, I mean, if you look at David Carradine, he was, when he did Death Race 2000, he was doing Kung Fu, which we forget was like a super critically acclaimed film that used like cinema techniques at a time, which most, most, or it's not film, television show that most television shows weren't using film techniques like that. Yeah. And that was like, so he was kind of slumming it, but I mean, they paid him a lot and you're right. Maybe there's just this temptation. They just gotta, they're like, we gotta do it. Cause I mean, like I said, Carradine didn't need the money. 
and he was 79 i think when he did this movie it's like what i i well i mean in the decade before he was in things like uh just to point out just to tie it into exploitation but he was in uh the bees vampire hookers Mm. shockwaves satan cheerleaders (laughs) uh yeah i mean Mm. all these that are actually Mm. for the most part uh, oh silent night bloody night Wow. For the most part, these are well-known titles in this uh, realm and sure. whatnot. So uh, this was just like, uh, you know, this was obviously at the tail end of his acting career. And, um, you know, I guess at a certain point, once you've done so many, it's like, is any one <laughs> truly worse than the other? <laughs> and, you know, I do think it's kind of like he wasn't alone, you know, like he's True. technically if... If all three of them were going to do it, I feel like that was an all or nothing type thing. Like, you know, it's like, well, if Julie and uh, Tina Louise are going to do it and they and, you know, I'm, we, I make jokes. But at the time, they were only just turned 50. Uh-huh. So as so as much as, you know, whatever. But like so technically they were still, I think, trying to hang on. Um, so it could have been more of a, you know, mentoree type thing. Well, like, well, yeah, if they're going to do it, I'll come by and, you know, I'll, I'll shoot for a couple of days and whatever. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm with it, you. yeah, as much as I think it was an abject failure on that part, <laughs> like there's just nothing redeeming about those scenes. Uh, you know, there's something kind of, uh, earnest about the camaraderie. I'm sure that, uh, forced them all to be together. <laughs> Well, you know, Tina Louise does have a couple pretty nice little, little just subtle grace notes as Cora. Like there's a part where she has this sort of moderate discomfort when she sees one of the gals being roughed up and gagged by the garage kidnapper. She's just kind of like, you can see it through the window and she's got like little fingertips on her temples for a second. Like, oh, you know, and I, I, it's just little stuff like that, you know. And also I feel indeed, I, I feel I would be remiss. I feel I would be most remiss indeed if I didn't mention the fact that Tina Louise and Julie Newmar rock those little silver mini skirts with the best of them. I was like, hubba. I'm not even like somebody who's really a fan of those two. But I mean, Newmar, like you said, like Newmar was like 53 and Louise was 52. How did they pull it off? They look as good as all the young early 20s gals walking around. I mean, it's, I mean, I just, I don't mean to be totally shallow. I just, it was shocking how well they pulled it off, elegantly even, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. Mm. Um, well, I mean, I feel like for the most part, we've covered just about everything we could about this. Was there any last thing you wanted to do before we get into a final rating? Yeah, just a couple quick things about um, yeah. a couple of the younger actors. I really liked uh, a gal named G.T. Taylor, who played Connie. Um, like you said, she's got the she's got the helium voice thing and she's doing. But I think she's honestly and maybe this is this is maybe I'm being hyperbolic. But I when I was watching it, I wrote in the notes like this has got to be one of the greatest squeaky voice blonde performances of all time. It's like she's genuinely. It's kind never of awesome. annoying. What's that? <laughs> So it's never annoying. I know she. Like, it, it, yeah, it's it's it, it, she has this unstudied lack of mannerisms that you usually see for that. Like even people who do a good job, like Leslie Ann Warren and you know Victor Victoria, we watched that recently. Yeah. Like that's great, but in this Connie was like she felt. I don't know. It felt guileless in a in a non annoying. I don't know. I just thought she did a great job. I was surprised. Yeah. So. Well, and, I. Oh, go oh yeah. No, no, go. Oh, I was just going to also say the other person that was a standout yeah. was uh, Carrie Emerson. 
Uh, she made for, I feel, a, a pretty appealing enough sort of pseudo Phoebe Cates as Nancy. Oh, yeah. Um, she's very invested. And there are times where her eyes are just so luminous. It's like, I wish she had done more movies because I, I looked her up afterwards. And like, she had a really small part in Sam Fuller's White Dog, which is great oh, fun wow. too. I mean, Sam Fuller, you know, he's one of the great, yeah. you know, B-movie exploitation directors. And then she was in Shopping Mall the year after this. Yeah, I think there were actually a couple people from Shopping Mall in this. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, Shopping Mall has Barbara Crampton, who's like one of the great screen queens, and Dick Miller, who's in all the Joe Dante movies, and Mary Waranoff from Death Race 2000, and wait for it, my friend, and Paul Bartel. Oh, really? Yeah. That Paul Bartel. Oh. Him and Mary Waranoff playing married couple as they did in several films for some reason <laughs> i know i've seen so, um uh shopping mall shopping mall and i love that movie but that's so funny i, I did not remember that i would love to watch it uh, especially now that i know this gal is in it and it's like she did one last flick in 1989 and then like imdb is like she suddenly stopped doing movies and i'm like well did she die or become ill and there's no there's no information it's like she just fell off the radar you know once in a while you'll see an actor like that where you're like yeah well usually it's an actress i should say yeah where they're going and then all of a sudden it's like bam they're gone and it's like they're just they had it they had it with the whole thing so so i thought carrie emerson was really good and and i'm sad that she didn't do more things because like i said i felt like she was she was pretty darn invested in the role and uh, showed some true, real emotion yeah, in the, it, you know. The, the other person uh, who was in Shopping Mall that was in this movie was uh, Tony O'Dell, who played the role of Billy in this movie. Oh, um, got which it. I think is the person who's at the beginning with the girl. I yeah. Not Billy's with... the one who get. he's the one who um, tries to escape. Yes, I believe. And yep. he gets like uh, hit by that light and he gives like, he screams for like 20 seconds straight. Yeah. I and mean, that was like, that was pretty impressive. Yeah. So he was also in Chopping Mall. Oh, well, I kind of like that. Yeah. I, I would love to watch that. Oh. I'm totally interested now. That's well, a great uh, movie. Um, and uh, well, before we go off on that tangent, uh, why don't we go into final ratings for this sure. movie, uh, Evils of the Night. Uh, I'll go really quick, and then I'll pass it off to you. Uh, Evils of the Night, like I had mentioned earlier, doesn't really work, but I don't hate it, and it, it, so it's all kind of in spite of itself. Um, it's really not something I would recommend anybody seek out, um, out, at least outside of the realm of cult films. Obviously, if you're into this stuff, then definitely go check it out. Go watch, you know, uh, this is nothing new, nothing whatever. <laughs> but it's just not, uh, It's it doesn't work in two different levels that I always think is either important uh, when considering their place in the canon, which is that A, it doesn't transcend uh, the stature of exploitation filmmaking or anything like that. So it's not really going to appeal to people who are not already into it. And B, it just doesn't really stand out in uh this genre alone so unfortunately i think there is a lot better examples uh even just to have fun with uh on a pure entertainment level but that said it is a fun little uh shoestring budget movie um, if it had leaned a little bit more into the sci-fi aspects and really in general 
beefed up the uh, material concerning uh, John Carradine, Tina Louise, and um, Julie Newmar's characters, it probably would have been a lot more memorable, I think, in the in this long-standing canon. But as a stand, it's just a mess of a movie. It sports a few decent uh, performances. Uh, definitely technically proficient. I think Marty Rustam knows his uh, stuff, but to no real avail. And so... For me, it's a three out of five, but like literally when I watched it two weeks ago, I gave it a two and a half. And then just last night, I gave it a three. So it's like, depending on the day of the week, uh, I am going to go back and forth on this movie as to whether it's actually uh, worth it. But for right now, I'm feeling a little charitable. So it's uh, it's three out of five for me for Evils of the Night. Dan Jeremy Brooks, what is your final rating? Uh, well, I mean, you're right. I mean, there there are. It, it's not a very successful film, and but I mean, like I said, there are the unusual, interesting, imaginative, you know, stuff. But they are kind of fleeting. Those elements are fleeting, or it's or it's one person kind of on their own. You know what I mean? Or you know what I mean? Moments, singular moments, or whatever. And um, and honestly, uh, it, it's tough because there's this part of me that feels, and I think you and I probably have talked about this, but. With the five-star system, uh, which I, I, I'm definitely a fan of, but my problem is, is that I always worry if I give something less than three stars, people think I have some personal animosity towards it or like I really don't like it. But it's not true. It's like I do like this film. It's just, uh, you know, I mean, to be honest, I, do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, Well, first of all, I'm no stranger to giving harsh ratings. Uh, like, I can give a movie a half star out of five. Uh, and I can still enjoy watching that movie. Not necessarily in a so bad as good, but in a, like, for me, the pleasure of watching movies is almost always present no matter what I'm watching. So mm-hmm. it's like there's just no such thing as a waste of time. Uh, in the grand scheme of things for me when it comes to just cinema in general. But having said that, I do try to take these things at face value. And I, as much as I completely understand that, you know, a lot of people work on these things and these are not easy to get made or whatever, you know, that it'd be like, you know, if the Eiffel Tower fell over one day. Like, well, a lot of people worked on that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, true. Like, well, it didn't do its job because it only had one job. So, you know, at the end of the day, I get it's torn true. between that and uh, I'm not afraid to give out any such rating. So so definitely don't be as well, Dan. Well, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I feel the same way when I go to when I go to a movie. Just going to the movies, the movie going experience to me, it's like even if the movie is pretty awful, like I still enjoy the experience. I love going to the theater. The lights come down. You're in the seat. You know, all the your, your candy or whatever. So I get you. There's very little where th- that isn't touched on some level by the cinema experience, as you said. You know, but I guess. I would probably have given this two stars, but I think I'm going to go up to two and a half because of the couple things I mentioned where I felt like, oh, this is interesting. You know, um, some of the performances by the younger people, like I said, and of course, you know, Neville Brand's last movie. And I don't know, just funny seeing this old guy still doing doing some really like contemptible role. I don't know. <laughs> you know. And um and as I said, the uh, the silver miniskirts. So I mean so two and a half, I would say out of five for me. Right on. All right, and now we are moving on to a segment called 
the A-list for anyone. Cue the theme song. <laughs> sorry. What did I say last <laughs> Do, week, Dan? Did, I'm sorry. Do you what did I say really last sorry. week? I said no theme song. So if I hear a theme song, guess who's not going to be on the episode next time? It ain't going to be well, me. Uh, I'm not saying there's going to be a theme song. I'm just saying there's a there's a high potentiality that a theme song may spontaneously appear as if by magic. You're going to blame it on the vampire aliens? Uh-huh. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's fair. Yeah. All right. Well, then I begrudgingly <sighs> accept and welcome a possible theme song for the A-list. I promise it'll be super short. Okay. Well, that's all I care about. Uh, the A-List. This is a segment in which me and Dan, myself, and my co-host here, come up with a film to pair with the movie we just talked about. And the spirit of this, which Dan completely ignored in our first episode, <laughs> uh, is to essentially chew them. We'll see. Spoilers. He may ignore it again this week. I don't know, because I don't. we don't know what these movies are ahead of time, at least uh, from each other's point of view. But the spirit of which is supposed to technically pair the movies we just talked about with a slightly more well-known movie, uh, whether it's a modern movie or a movie from the same era, uh, and and pair it for whatever reason we want, whether it's a uh, double billing based on an actor or uh, based on shared themes. I mean, this is really going to run the gamut, I think, week after week, and we'll probably take it into some very interesting directions, uh, especially after Dan said "fuck the rules" last time. So, in that spirit, I don't know if I I'm said just, that exact phrase, but no, I'm saying it for you. Yeah, that was kind of the gesture, right? Okay, go I'm on. just kidding. No, I I told you last week. I said, "A at the very least, I now really want to see that movie." So, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, at least that's a good, shall we say, window into how I'm approaching this. Uh, my A film for this week would be The Faculty by uh, Robert Rodriguez. Nice. Uh, got a similar vibe going on, obviously, with teenagers literally being kind of hunted and chased down by adults um, in a kind of a proto-slasher way, invasion of the body horror snatcher thing. Um, Faculty, in this case is a much better movie. Um, it's, it's, a, it's hugely entertaining, obviously. Uh, it's a great cast uh, from the 90s. I mean, you had, uh, what do you call it? Elijah Wood, Josh Hartnett, Sean Hattisoy. Clea Duvall. Yeah. And that's... Uh, Jordana Brewster, uh, I want to say. Yeah, that's that's the children. Uh, the right. adults, you know, uh, Robert Patrick, Baby Newirth, mm -hmm. uh, Piper Laurie, Famke Jessen, and uh, even Jon Stewart and Salma Hayek. So... Uh, just a lot of great talent in that movie, and uh, it deserves the cult following it has. And, you know, there's a, a slight difference, obviously, being that they're high schoolers. Uh, but I don't really think anybody in the movie Evils of a Night was acting their age, per se. <laughs> um, like, even, like, 
No, but like besides having sex, like there's no real like there's no pot smoking, there's no real drinking. Like they are surprisingly uh like at one point he's like, Get me a Shirley Temple and it he sounds like a high schooler who's never drunk before. So yeah, uh, yeah. I, I feel like the childish nature of Evils of a Night does fit uh right at home with Robert Rodriguez's send up of these kind of teens in peril uh movies. So for me, my A-list uh, choice this week is The Faculty. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, definitely give it a shout. Uh, give it a shout. Uh, give it a shot. Don't give it a shout. It can't hear you. It's a movie. Uh, give it a shot and uh, try it out. And you know what? If you're feeling very adventurous, then try Evils of a Night. So, Dan, uh, I got to say, I'm on pins and needles. Mm-hmm. What is your A-list? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> so Harry Smith made this film in 47. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I just, I just, I'm not going to mention Heaven and Earth Magic. No. Uh, I, I originally thought about, <laughs> I'm just sorry, I was trying to think of the most obscure <sighs> thing that you can't find that's yeah. like, it's, there's not even sound in that. It's all just, you know, We're going to be talking about like, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre one time and you're going to be like, well, for my A-list, uh, the Lumiere brothers once made a short, <laughs> in wit, and I'll just, I'm just going to stop and literally quit the podcast right then and there. You're, you're going to actually reach through the the Skype. And Video just, drone style. Exactly. Exact. Long live the new flesh. You know, you're oh, just man, like, what a great movie. But. Oh, yeah, but... Yes. Uh, no, I originally thought about The Man Who Fell to Earth, because it... I mentioned oh. some of the editing ellipses, ellipses that, yes. uh, you know, reminded me of Nicholas Rogue. But honestly, the plot is not very similar. So I eventually decided to talk about Under the Skin, uh, Jonathan Glazer's ah. film from 2013. And um, if you haven't listened to it, check out Film Tank episode 87 from January of 2017. Damn, you got... You've got the number and everything. Well, it's it's a good episode. It's one of my favorites. We can't keep track of what number we're on in the week we're in. <laughs> and we do it every week. But every week it's a conversation where me and the my my the host, Alex, is like, what number are we on? I don't know. Well, what number did we do last week? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So there's clearly a fastidious, uh, you know, attention to detail here. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I mean, honestly, though, the Film Tank episode is quite good. It's um, all three of you thought very highly of it. And it was a really good conversation. I, I think you all gave it at least four stars, or I want to say. Um, yeah, we're all big fans of that movie over yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, we saw that in the theater, and uh, that was that was extraordinary. Um, and it, just visually and mood wise, it's very. Um, I mean, there's little shades, perhaps, of Kubrick, but that's just not even really doing it justice. It's really its own thing. Um, so basically, it features Scarlett Johansson, um, who is one of my favorite specialist imaginary girlfriends, and. It's it's cool. Heidi knows she's totally understands because she's got her thing with Jeff Goldblum. So like if Jeff Goldblum walked through the door one day, she'd be like, I got to go. And I'm like, yeah, honey, I get it. You know, so so, and you know, we are really getting to the thick of it here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm really trying to talk about talk the the themes of the of the film. Yeah. But uh, actually, I recently learned that Ava Green was considered for the role, too, which I think would have been pretty good. Actually, she I could see probably, that working. I'm not saying I would want it recast, but uh, no, no, I wouldn't either. Could do but it. she would have brought that trademark intensity that 
I was going to say, Green even Green has. is almost playing that character in a lot of things she already does. Whereas with Scarlet, <laughs> that was a weird uh, aberration from what she mm-hmm. normally does. But Eva Green is pretty much that uh, such a standard right now in today's world of kind of tempestuous uh, mm-hmm. creature from another planet because nobody's on her level. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very true. Um, but uh, she does have that quality. You know, I also read that January Jones was also considered, which I think would have been a fucking disaster in my opinion, but that's just me. You know, I'm a January Jones defender. I know. I'm in sorry. that I think she... Hey, I no, think she's I wonderful. I that I dissed her just now. And, you know. Oh, no, I, I think it's warranted. But I, there's a lot of people who were really took her to task uh, for her character in Mad Men, and I actually think she's one of the best parts of that show. I thought she did fine um, in that movie, in that show. I thought she was fine in that show. It's just other stuff I was like, nah, okay, whatever. I mean, I, I'd agree with that. But I am with you in that, uh, unlike Ava Green, that I don't think would have been the right decision. Uh, so, uh, the music is by, uh, one of my favorite, uh, current music artists slash composers, um, uh, Mikachu, or is it Mikachu? I'm never sure, quite sure. Uh, but it's, uh, she's just fantastic. I but- wish for his sake, or I should say, I hope for his sake, it is Mikachu because mm. I mean, if you're rhyming with Pikachu, your name is pretty much set for gold. True, true. Well, it's, I, I, I don't, I think her real name's like Micah Levy, so it's probably Mikachu, oh. not Mikachu. Yeah, all right. Then never but mind. But anyway, not she, as cool. she wrote the score. It is eerie and terrifying and fully immersive and um, so inextricable from the film itself. I mean, I've listened to the score by itself, but it, with the film, it's, it's a, it's a very overwhelming experience. I mean, she's, there are times the things she's the way she treats uh some of the the strings the effects she puts on it uh slowing down speeding up and the various uh just ways she kind of garbles and and chews stuff up it's like um and i'm quoting my favorite poet robert lowell here but it sounds like a lot of wild spiders crying together and i think that's really one description that's pretty accurate for that film anyway so uh, i should probably tell you what the plot is it's it's a large basically it's a large-scale alien operation in which johansson is like one of the faces of it and johansson uses her not so hidden charms to seduce and predate men you know basically they i think she's grabbing their essence or life force or the like which is apparently to be used as some kind of energy source by the aliens it's it, it, one of the space st- vampires yeah i mean one of the strengths of the film is they don't really go into it too much but still i mean getting killed with joy i mean what a way to go am i right eh, am i right here people eh? this guy in the front row yeah he knows yeah am i right okay Sorry, um, but it also the film also plays like a, a really brilliant commentary on the normalization of rape culture in our society, because it does so by basically turning the gender roles on their head and making Johansson the predator to a bunch of like completely unwary, guileless men, because men typically don't have to take precautions when they're hooking up with a woman as opposed to a woman where it's like, well, every man might potentially be a killer, you know, or, or something. And it's just, it's just a brilliant film. Um, so that subtext is fascinating. And also just the way it was done is so interesting, which I didn't know how that was done until after I had seen it the first time, but basically the director 
had uh, used a ton of hidden cameras. So a great deal of it was improvisation between her and people who didn't know they were being filmed. And then afterward, they would talk to him and say, hey, we really liked what you did in the scene. You were being filmed. Would you like to do a couple more scenes with us that maybe are more special effects intense? If not, no problem. But it, it's, it's so it comes out in a very naturalistic way. Um, it, it's a very unusual, kind of a one-of-a-kind movie, both in the way it was made and in the final product. So I highly recommend Under the Skin 2013. Jonathan Glazer. Hope he does another movie soon, damn it. Uh, he's working on something, but I actually think it's a TV show. No. No, I mean, oh, okay, that's cool. No, hey. that's cool. It's just... Hey. No, hey. I just... Okay, you know, you could... I will pull this podcast over. <laughs> I love... I mean, I will tell you, my favorite thing David Lynch ever did is Twin Peaks. I think that's a masterpiece. But Which is a TV is, show. I know. For any of the weirdos I know, out there. You said, you said, you see somebody on Letterboxd and they're like, my favorite movie is Twin right. Peaks. And you're like, you're like, my eye starts twitching. And I'm like, I get it. I mean, the worst part about that is they're like, is season three of Twin Peaks. It's like, oh yeah, because season three, which is phenomenal. I'm not saying anything about season three, but it's like, it just magically became a movie. Like, I don't care what David Lynch says. I don't care that it had a more modern cinematic look than, you know, whatever. Like, no, it didn't just become a movie just because that's now the new thing to say. But anyway, no, no, you're, you're right. Movie. You're right. I mean, and as, as it gets blurred, I mean, it's weird because you have, you know, films being released on Netflix or, Hulu that are like, well, are, should these be in consideration for Oscars? And well, I mean, that's a whole nother subject. But anyway, yes, I'm, I would watch anything Jonathan Glazer does next. I've liked his, all three of his films. So. Mm -hmm. well, right on. Uh, well, that was the A-list and uh, we hope you enjoy it. And, uh, you know, if you have an uh, idea, if you're listening for a segment or if something else that we could be doing or whatever, please email us at projectsploitation at gmail.com uh this is exciting because last week was our first episode so we have not yet launched but this week is our second episode because i'm good at counting uh <laughs> although eventually i will lose the count and i will have no idea what episode we're on uh but that's a good sign not a bad sign uh and I will say that we are now officially on all major podcast platforms. So you can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and wherever else podcast feeds are pulled. Uh, so before I uh, sign off, I want to say the only other thing we have going right now is our social media presence is limited exclusively to Twitter, where you can follow us at ProjectsPod. That's P R O J. E-X-P-O-D. And, uh, you know, actually, this past week, I've been using that space. I didn't tell Dan this, but uh, I've been using that space to spout off right-wing propaganda. Oh, good, now, good. Anti-Semitic uh, yeah. stuff. I get it. No, that makes yep. sense. Anti-Asian, anti-Semitic. Yeah. Sure. No, I mean, I, I'm trying to start my own Pizzagate. Sure, you know, sure, sure, can, sure, sure. You know, I just like pizza. Right. Now, I've been using that space to actually kind of shout out into the void of uh, anything I've been watching that would fit the criteria for this kind of stuff. Oh, that's you know? great. So, yeah. 
like I was watching a lot of Giallo films uh, this past weekend. Nice. So every time I was watching a new one, I just threw up the poster and said, now watching whatever. So follow that. Even if you're not a fan of the podcast, uh, you know, you can at least maybe talk to me or I'll talk to you because I'm lonely uh, about some of these wonderful fine films uh, and some of the bad ones as well. Uh, that was on Twitter at ProjectsPod. Now you and Jeremy you said, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I just was going to say you had said now the reason why yeah. Twitter with Twitter, you're limited into the amount of characters. So you had to call it Project Correct. Spy. Yeah, and, uh, it was uh, 15 characters as Project Exploitation and you can only do 14. Right. And I I um, I have a comment I'd like to make about it that I, I didn't I just thought oh, of after. Do. But I was thinking, okay. you know, Twitter, they should call it shitter. That's what I think. Oh, wow. Because Dan Jeremy Brooks screwed, really coming in. Yeah. I think you'll agree yeah. that my lacerating wit is at its finest. But yeah, I was like, I have this idea. I'm thinking about this thing. I wish I would have said this then, but I didn't think wow. of it until later. You know, it's. Well, you know what? When Michael Mann recuts our first episode, <laughs> uh, you can put it in there. Okay. I'll. I'll. Because oh, uh, we'll have no say in it. So mm-hmm. from myself, Nick Cheney my good friend not my bad friend dan jeremy brooks thank you so much for listening to episode two of project exploitation and we'll see you next time it just needs an end max i i don't have an end